That's 1 John chapter 4. We're going to begin this morning at verse 12 as we make our way through this book. And it's something to be aware of and to just understand the general theme that John has been speaking of in this book. He's been hammering away at this theme again and again, this idea of love and the outworking of God's love in our life and what it means to us and how he moves in our lives through his love. As we come to verse 12, we see that John begins with a statement that might not seem to be connected to the love of God in our lives, but as you'll see, it really is. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Now again, John begins with a very simple statement, very straightforward, but a lot of times we don't really believe it. He says, no one has seen God at any time. John's relating for us there a very basic principle about God the Father, that no one, that no one has seen God at any time. And anybody who claims to have seen God the Father is speaking, at best, from their own imagination. Because as the Bible plainly says, no one has seen God at any time. Now, in speaking of God the Father, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, said, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible. He said, And Jesus told us that God, God the Father, is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There's no tangible body which God the Father has that can be seen. Now, I know this might contradict what you have imagined in your mind. It's very common for us, and just human nature, I suppose, to want to picture God the Father sitting on his throne. And I don't know what kind of picture you think of in your mind. Maybe you think of a grandfatherly old face with a big, long, white beard and sort of a kind twinkle in his eyes. You say, well, that's Santa Claus. That's not God the Father. (laughs) We don't know what God looks like because, again, he has no tangible body. He's invisible. He's spirit. And that's something that's difficult for us to relate to because we're very much bound in our own dimension, in our own experience of things. But no one has seen God the Father at any time. Now, of course, no one has seen the Holy Spirit either, although he has represented himself in some somewhat tangible forms at times, a flame descending upon Jesus as a dove, the Bible says. Uh, And we know that people have seen God the Son, of course, Jesus Christ. In the first few verses of John's letter, he says, we've seen him, we've touched him, our hands have handled him. People have seen and touched God the Son, And there's been some, at least, physical representation of God, the Holy Spirit, but no one has seen God the Father at any time. Now, might I say that this sort of gives us a caution, doesn't it? Anytime somebody begins and starts talking about their heavenly vision and tells you about when they saw God the Father in heaven, that should sort of make a little warning light go off in your mind, shouldn't it? Wait a minute, you should say, I know what the Bible says. I don't know what they saw, but I know what the Bible says. No one has seen God at any time. But it should also make us beware of something else. I think it should bring some humility into our hearts. Can I tell you something right now? And this might come as news to some of you, but it should be heard very well. You can't figure out God. You're not going to be able to completely comprehend him. He's above you. 
He's past your ability to investigate and to find out. He's beyond you. I mean, God is God, and you're not. He's beyond us. He's, he's invisible. He's, he's past our finding out, at least in fullness or completeness. And certainly we can know something of God. We can know of God what he's revealed to us from himself. But beyond that, we really can't. Now, if no one has seen God any time, how can we know if God is living in us and among us? I mean, if God's invisible... How do you know that he's there? How do you know that he's working? You know, for some people, they treat God kind of like their invisible friend. I don't know how it was when you were a kid. Maybe some of your own children. They have an invisible friend. You know, and here's my invisible friend. And for some people, God's like that. Their invisible friend never does anything, never says anything, never gives any evidence that they're there, yet they say, here's my invisible friend. My friends, God is not an invisible friend. God is real, and you can really tell where God is, and you can really tell when God is doing something. Now, how? Well, some people think that the greatest evidence of God's presence or God's work is power. And maybe you've seen it on television, folks who kind of tend to think along those lines. They think where you have an arena full of people, and the preacher waves his jacket And everybody falls over, and it's, wow, that's power. God must really be there. You know, and the preacher starts talking funny, and his voice gets this on this line. That's power. Wow, the Lord must really be there. But you know, friends, that's not the evidence of God's presence. That's not the evidence of God's work. Think about the ministry of Jesus. Were there times in the ministry of Jesus where he didn't seem all that powerful? Yeah, that's true. Think of Jesus, exhausted after a day of ministry, sleeping on a boat. That's not powerful. There's nothing powerful about anybody when they're asleep. Think about Jesus hanging on the cross, subjecting his back to be whipped, to to bear that ground of thorns upon his head. Is that power? Not really. Friends, there were times when Jesus didn't seem very powerful, but can anybody tell me a time when Jesus didn't seem loving? No. Always love, not always power. Power is not the real evidence that God is present and working. Well, other people think that the real evidence that God is present, that the real evidence that God is working, is popularity. Oh, look, there's a multitude, there's a crowd, wherever there's a lot of people. Wow, God must be doing something. And if you can get a big crowd, man, the Lord is really working there. The Lord is really present. I don't think so. You know, if popularity is the measure of God's presence, of God's work, then God was doing a mighty work in our nation last Thursday night when some 75 million people got together to watch a television show, you know, that last episode. I don't think so. I don't think that God was doing a great work that night through that program, but it was awfully popular, wasn't it? And when you think about the ministry of Jesus, well, certainly there were times when Jesus was immensely popular. There were other times when everybody left him and only the 12 were left and he wasn't very popular. So there were times when Jesus wasn't very popular. Was there ever a time when he was not loving? No. So it's not power. It's not popularity. Other people think that the real evidence of God's presence, of God's work, is passionate feelings. Oh, we're there together, and everybody's so stirred, and there's just tears rolling down the face of everybody. And there's somebody else. They're so happy. They're so joyful. They can hardly stay in their seat. 
Just there's passionate feelings all around. Well, that's where the presence of God is. That's where God's really doing a work. Well, that's true. Then I guess when you go to a football stadium or a baseball stadium and everybody's cheering and yelling and all filled with passion, I guess God's doing a great work there. No, not at all. And again, we look at the ministry of Jesus, don't we? At times, passionate feelings are aroused because of Jesus and what he's doing. At other times, the ministry of Jesus was greeted with a great big yawn. But was there ever a time when he was not loving? No, my friends. You see, where God is present, where God is working, there is going to be love. That's the evidence. That's how you know. I mean, there can be things present that we cannot see. They're invisible to our own eyes. But you can tell that they're there. You can tell that they're working when you examine for evidence. Uh, Right now, this room is filled with radio waves all over the place. They're bouncing around everywhere. You can't see them. There's radio waves and, and going all over the place. But if you had a radio and pull up the antenna and turn it on, you can capture those radio waves and give evidence that they're there. They're invisible, but here's the evidence. Or let's say that uh, you're in a room and uh, you think that somebody was there and they were messing with the furniture in the room or messing with this or that, but they're not there anymore. They're invisible now. You could get out your little crime busters crime kit and dust for fingerprints and you can find fingerprints and see that they were there. You know that they were there even though at the present time they're invisible. My friends, what's the fingerprint of God? It's not power. It's not popularity. It's not passionate feelings. Though all of those things can be wonderful, the real fingerprint of God is love. And that's how you can tell when God is moving among a bunch of people, there's going to be love there. He goes on to say in verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. I can tell that God lives in you and you can tell that God lives in me if there's love one for another. Then he goes on to say in verse 12, and his love has been perfected in us. Now that word perfected in the original language that John was writing in, it doesn't so much have the idea of perfect as we usually think of perfect, as you know, well, there's Mr. Perfect, or there's somebody like that. The idea of perfect in the ancient Greek word that John was using is basically the idea of maturity and completeness. Think of it in this term. How can you tell a mature Christian? How can you tell a complete Christian? By power, by popularity, by passionate feelings? No, you can tell it by love. That's how you're going to tell a mature Christian. The mature Christian will be marked by love, and we can be spiritual dwarfs, spiritual midgets, because we lack love. Oh, you can know the word. You can never miss a service. You can pray with fervency. You can demonstrate marvelous gifts of the Spirit. But if love isn't there, that's the measure for maturity. That's what God looks at, and that's what we should look at. Now, God wants to do this great work in our lives of developing and maturing love. But what I think is significant is that it's such a big job. I don't know about you, but it's a big job for God to develop that kind of love in me. He needs every member of the Holy Trinity to work on it in my life. And that's what he's talking about here. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. I need God the Holy Spirit to be working that love in my life. Verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father, I need God the Father to be working that love in my life, 
has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. I need Jesus to be working that love in my life. But how do they do it? Well, again, go back to the beginning of verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him. Okay, now let me help you with that word abide. It's not a word that we use very often. It's kind of a religious sounding word, right? Let's just substitute another word for it, just in your understanding. Live. By this we know that we live in him. How do you know that your life is in Jesus Christ? John tells us, he says, by this we can know that we live in him. Well, the first thing I want to say is he uses a word there, know. Did you know that you can know? Now, as I look out across faces here this morning, I imagine that many of you know that you have eternal life. And maybe there's some of you who don't know you're hoping. You're thinking, well, probably, pretty sure. But I would ask you, do you know that you have it? Well, I guess so. I hope so. Did you know that there's some people who believe that you can't know whether or not you have eternal life until you pass to the world beyond? Can I tell you what a horrible time to find out if you don't have it? Good heavens. It's like if you were going away on a distant journey, there's absolutely something you needed to bring. There's absolutely something you had to pack. And, and you, you say, well, you know, I think I have it in my suitcase. I'm not really sure. I'll just find out when I get there. Friends, open up the suitcase and take a look. Do you have it? Do you know that you have it? John tells us that we can have that knowledge. We can know and we can know now on this side of eternity. But how do we know? Well, that's the first couple words of this verse. Did you see that in verse 13? By this we know. By what? By what he told you in verse 12. As you know, the Bible isn't some big magical book. It's just words and they make sense and we can figure it out. He says, by this we know. Well, by what? Look back at verse 12. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. If God has put a love in your life for other people in the body of Christ, in the family of God, and if that love is living and flowing and growing in your life, by this you can know that you live in him. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But not only is that the way that you can know that you live in him, look at verse 13 again with me. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. That's precious. You know what that tells me? You know what it tells you? Is that our life with God isn't God just kind of standing off in the distance, folding his arms, saying, okay, now abide in me. And then we draw close to him and he takes a step away. Now, come on, abide in me. And it's like we have to chase him around. And he's playing hard to get. And, you know, we have to run after him. He's saying, abide in me, abide in me. You're not working hard enough, abiding me. No, we abide in him. But you know what? He abides in us. He lives in us too. Jesus Christ lives in us. It's not some one-sided affair with us struggling to abide in him and Jesus trying to escape us. No, he abides in us. Now, how does Jesus live in you? How? Some people think, sometimes it's funny to talk to little kids about this. You ask them, where is Jesus? 
And you might explain to them that Jesus is up in heaven right now. Oh no, Jesus isn't in heaven. Jesus is in my heart. Well, Jesus is in my heart too. No, he's not in your heart. He's in my heart. He can't be in two places at the same time, can he? Now friends, how does Jesus live in us? By the indwelling Spirit of God. God the Son lives in us by the indwelling Spirit of God. And that's what he's getting at in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that gives us the indwelling Jesus Christ and that assures us that He lives within us. And then John goes on in verse 14 and he says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Now I think that there's a sense when John writes that in verse 14 that he says it in a way that you and I cannot say it. Oh, you might say, I know that Jesus has come into the world to be the Savior of the world and I know it because he saved me. And that's a precious thing for you to be able to say. But can I tell you, that the Apostle John could write that in a way that you and I cannot. Because he says, we've seen and testify. John saw something of the glory of Jesus Christ that you and I have not seen with our physical eyes. I think of the time that Jesus took a few of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, away with him up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And there they are in the Mount of Transfiguration, and, and they're up there, and Jesus is transfigured before him. He's metamorphosize. It's, it's almost like something out of a science fiction movie. His, his being becomes shining and bright and glorious. And all of a sudden, right next to him appear Moses and Elijah. And there's Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And it's just amazing to see the whole package together. You know, what's going on? And the disciples see it, and Peter speaks up. Peter, putting his foot in his mouth, as he was so often wont to do. And then Peter says, Lord, I know, we'll build three shrines here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, some people wonder how Peter knew that it was Moses and Elijah there. I don't know, they weren't wearing name tags. You know, Hello, Elijah, it says on the <laughs> It's not like that. I think that when we get to heaven, we're just going to know. Some people wonder about that. They say, when I get to heaven, am I going to know you? Are you going to know me? Are we going to know Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elijah? Well, of course you are. Look, you know me on earth. You think you're going to be dumber in heaven than you are on earth? <laughs> We're going to know each other in heaven. And I don't know how it works, but Peter, James, and John knew that it was Moses and Elijah. Now, when he said, let's build three shrines together here, what was he doing? He was putting Jesus on an equal level with Moses and Elijah. Three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You know, if you were to put me on an equal level with Moses and Elijah, that would be the best compliment I ever had in my life. I would live off of that in the rest of my life. I'd milk it for everything I could have. Oh, wow. Me next to Moses and Elijah. Wow. But to say that about Jesus was a put down. Isn't that amazing? You're putting Jesus down to put him in the same category as Moses and Elijah. So right at that moment, God spoke from heaven. God, the Father, spoke from heaven. And he said to Peter, James, and John, and they heard him speak. This is my beloved son 
Listen to him. That's why John can look at us and say, listen, man, I've seen and I testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. He knew it. And so what does he tell us? He tells us three things, three very important truths in verses 14 and 15. Number one, the Father sent the Son. Do you realize that, friends? Jesus was not on some independent commando mission when he came down from heaven to earth. He was sent by God the Father. And it demonstrates that God the Father loves you, that God the Father cares about you. Wipe away forever from your mind this idea that there's some mean old God the Father in heaven, this Old Testament guy who was killing everybody and wiping out. He's mad at everybody all the time. And you need to run to the nice Jesus who's going to save you from the mean old God the Father. No, the Father loves you. And he sent the Son to accomplish your salvation. The Father has sent the Son. Number two, he sent him as the Savior of the world. Friends, we need it. You and I and everybody, we need a Savior. We don't need a teacher. We don't need an example. We don't need another moral lesson. We don't need an advisor. We don't need a conference. We don't need an expert. We need a Savior. Think of it, my friends, you're a drowning person. There you are, you're in the middle of the ocean, you're drowning. You're beginning to, to breathe in water, you're flailing at the water. What do you need? Somebody come around and show you a video on how to swim? That's not going to do you any good. What, do you need an Olympic swimmer to come by and say, look, just watch me and I'll show you how to do it. You know, and he polishes off a few strokes. Or, just do it like this. What, do you need a lecture on, on you know, the, the effects of drowning and, 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 you know, going under the water? You don't need all that. You need a savior. You need somebody to grab you and to pick you up out of the water. A lifeguard to say, I will save you from drowning. And friends, that's what we need. And God the Father sent the Son to be the savior of the world. The Father sent the Son. He sent him to be the savior of the world. And number three, look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Do you know what it means to confess that Jesus is the Son of God? It's not the same as merely knowing it as a fact. Listen carefully to me. There are many people who know the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. They know that fact, but they're going to go to hell nonetheless. There are people who know that. But there are other people who do more than know that it is a fact that Jesus is the Son of God. They confess it. Do you know what it means to confess that Jesus is the Son of God? The idea behind that word confess is to agree with. You're agreeing with it. Now, you can know a fact without agreeing with it, right? Without saying in your heart, yes, I agree. Yes, that's for me. Yes, I'm in support of that. Yes, I'm putting my fate in that fact's hands. Friends, that's what it means to confess. It isn't just knowing that Jesus is the Son of God. It's confessing it. And John is saying that's what we must do. It isn't enough to know the facts behind who Jesus is. We must confess the truth. Now, I think this is remarkable because John has been writing a lot to us in this letter about love, hasn't he? And we love hearing about the love of God. I do. And it's almost like a broken record. Love, 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 love. John, what do we do? Love, love, love. 
But John will never let us love at the expense of truth. The truth has to be there. The truth about who Jesus is. The truth about what he's come to do in our lives. Love and truth are not opposites. They don't contradict one another. They're to work together in our lives. And how do we respond to that love? Look at it in verse 16. Two things that God wants you to do in response to this love. He wants you to know it and he wants you to believe it. Look at it in verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. We're called to take the love and the grace that God has given and we're called to know it by experience and to believe it. This is what fellowship with God is all about. Friends, you might know that God loves you, but do you know the love of God? Do you believe it? Is it in your life? How do you respond to the love of God? You know, some people respond with a sense of self-superiority. You know, I'm so great, even God loves me. Everybody loves me, even God. Friends, that's not the way to receive the love of God. Other people receive the love of God with doubt. They said, well, can God really love even me? That's not how we're to respond to God's love. Some people respond to God's love with wickedness. They say, well, hey, God loves me. I can do whatever I want to do. He loves me just as I am. So just whatever I want to do, that's what I'm going to do. And God loves me. But God wants us to respond to his love, not with self-superiority, not with doubt, not with wickedness, but with knowing by experience and believing the love God has for us. Do you believe that God loves you? Let me turn that around. I think that's too easy a question. Do you believe that God loves you? Yeah, I believe God loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I know that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, let me turn it around. What do you think it would take to make you stop believing that God loves you? Well, you know, if I got really sick and uh, got cancer or something, I'd probably stop believing that God loved me. You know, if some tragedy happened in my family, if uh, something horrible happened in my life or if in my business, if I lost everything, well, if this happened or the other thing happened or something else, then maybe God wouldn't love me. My friends, your answer to that question, what would it take to make you believe that God stopped loving you or doesn't love you, that's the question that determines how much you believe the love of God. You know what Paul said to that question? You walk up to Paul the Apostle. Say, Paul, what would it take to make you stop believing that God loves you? And he would say, neither height nor death nor angels, nor principalities, nor things in heaven, nor things on earth, nor things seen or unseen, nor this or that or anything else. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's a heart God wants us to have, and that's the heart that really believes that God loves them. The heart that says, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Oh, Lord, if you'll just give me this girlfriend, then I know you love me. If you just give me this job, then I know you'll love me. If you just help me win the lotto, God, then I know you'll love me. Oh, friends, what would it take to make you think that God stopped loving you? If the answer is anything other than nothing, 
He's proven it once and for all. He's already demonstrated, I know he loves me. Then there's something lacking. So he goes on to say in verse 17, and, you know, we've been walking on some pretty high ground here, and I just take another big step up here with verse 17. Love has been among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Friends, the completeness of God's work in us will be demonstrated in the day of judgment. Now, maybe this morning, you're sitting here saying, oh, David, just preach it. I'm with you, brother. Yeah, I believe it. Man, oh, just go for it. Just, yeah, oh, I believe it. I know God, nothing could separate me from the love of God. Yes, yes, yes. And you might say, I know the love of God. You don't know it at all compared to how you will know it on the day of judgment. Well, you may think you know it now. And praise God if you do. All the more so on the day of judgment. You know why? You may know that you're a sinner now. You're going to know it on the day of judgment. <laughs> There's no comparison between the two. You may know that you're no better than people who are destined to hell, that, that you're saved by the grace of God and by nothing in your own works and merits. You may know that in your mind. You're going to know it on the day of judgment. You may know the reality of hell now. Oh, you don't like to think about it. It's a horrible thought and you want to avoid it. But you know it. It's there. The intellectual, you know the reality of hell. Friends, you're going to know it on the day of judgment. And you may know the greatness of Jesus' salvation now. You may be filled with as much knowledge of the greatness of the salvation of Jesus Christ, as much as you can possibly hold in your body. I mean, you're filled up to the top. Friends, you don't know it at all compared to how you're going to know it on the day of judgment. Now, that's not what is mind-blowing to me in verse 17. There's a word in there. I understand it, but I don't understand it. Look at it, verse 17 Love has been among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Friends, I would be happy to survive the day of judgment. <laughs> and John says that the work of God's love in me and in you can be so great that we just don't survive the day of judgment we have boldness in the day of judgment. All right, you, you've gotten a ticket and been to traffic court, and you're going to have a thing or two to say to that judge, right? And I've been there. And there I am at traffic court. Now, you know, I, I think of myself as a fairly confident person. I mean, I'm not you know, Mr. Lionhearted or something, but I'm no chicken. And I speak pretty well before people, you know. I mean, I'm not intimidated to stand in front of you all and to talk to you about the Bible. When I've stood before a judge in traffic court, I'm terrified. <laughs> and I can hardly talk. 
And it's like, oh, I'm starting to hyperventilate a little bit. And my voice kind of cracks a little bit. And I'm like all nervous and everything. I'm thinking, what am I so nervous for? I mean, I've been in tougher cities and I speak just fine. There's something before that judge that just makes me so, I'm anything but bull. I'm a chicken. The work of God's love is so great in me and in you that when we stand before that ultimate throne, friends, the Bible says that one day all of humanity will gather before God's great white throne and face judgment. That day is coming. The day of judgment is just as fixed in God's eternal timetable as any other day. Just as surely as there's a, a May 17th, 1998, there's a day of judgment that's on God's calendar and it's approaching. I don't know when, but we're one day closer to it today than we were yesterday. And friends, it's real. And you and I and everybody, we're going to stand before that throne. And some people think that when they stand before that throne, they think that they're going to judge God. Oh, have you heard people? Maybe you've said it yourself at some time. Maybe you said, well, you know, when I come before God, there's a few questions I want to ask him. (laughs) And maybe they're asking that out of some deep pain or hurt in their life. You know, why did you let my baby be born deformed? Why did you allow this to happen? Why did you allow that to happen? I'm going to ask him a few questions. Friends, I plead with you, and I plead with anybody who's ever asked that question. You're not going to ask any questions of God in that day. you're going to realize that God is God and you are not and that he has every right in the world to sit in judgment of you. And if you do not have this issue settled before and if you don't have boldness now because of the love of God and its work in your life, you're not going to have that boldness in the day of judgment. So how can we have that boldness? It just seems incomprehensible. I understand it, but I don't understand it. Look at it in verse 17. Love has been among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because, okay, because, I guess he's going to tell us, right? Because as he is, so are we in this world. Okay, let's think about that for a minute. As he is. Who's the he? Well, it's Jesus Christ. Do you understand what this means? It means that as Jesus is. Well, how is Jesus right now? How is Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven? Do you think he's filled with total peace and total assurance and total comfort? Do you think he's afraid that God the Father is going to be mad at him or something? Total boldness. Total righteousness, total purity, total justification. His status is is one of complete rightness before God. And friends, as he is, so are we in the world. I don't understand it. I don't understand it, how I can have the standing of Jesus Christ in this world. But I do, and it's by faith, and it's because he's given me that standing, because I trust in him, and you also, too, I trust. Friends, certainly this glory is in us now, just in seed form. It's not fully developed into what it will be, but it's demonstrated its presence in us by our love for one another and our agreement with God's truth. 
And that gives us the ability to serve him with boldness. All right, verses 18 and 19. We've been climbing a ladder. We took a big step up with verse 17. Better get on your mountain climbing gear here for 18 and 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. I'm going to read it again. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Now as I read those, and you as a child of God, even you if you're not committed to Jesus Christ, you read those words, you know there's something there. No fear and love. We don't fear God anymore. We have a relationship with love and we love him because he first loved. You know there's something powerful, something very precious in those two verses. It's another step up in this ladder we've been climbing. And since the air is kind of thin up here and the time's escaping us, I think we'll have to consider those two verses next week. And what glorious verses to talk about the love of God and how it just abolishes fear in our hearts and and what it means that we can say we love him because he first loved us. But that's for next week. Maybe we should just be satisfied with saying that we can have boldness in the day of judgment. Friends, not just survive it, but have boldness. Why? Because God loves you that much. And he wants you to receive that love and have it transform your life and give you a love for others in the body of Christ. And in light of that, my friends, it it should frighten you. It should raise an alarm in your heart and in your mind if this morning you look at your heart and there's not love for your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Because that's the evidence John has been talking about here. That's the because. That's why we can have boldness in the day of judgment. Because we know God's love has been poured into us and we know it's been poured into us because it's being poured out of us into others that we know and love. Now, I know what you're thinking. You say, oh, David, I love everybody. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Except them. Except that one. Except Mr. So-and-so. Except Mrs. So-and-so. Oh, but everybody else I love. Well, can I tell you that at that point, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, Isn't that where God's dealing with you right now this morning? Isn't that what God's telling you to give up that resentment, that bitterness? To walk in freedom of it and walk in that full boldness and assurance knowing that you know the love of God has been poured into you because it pours out of you to everybody. 